This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, America's most trusted source for adult toys. With over 40 years of customer satisfaction, guaranteed packaging, and 24-7 customer service support, Adam and Eve is the place for playtime. Go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only, and you'll get 50% off of just about any item. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll receive three free adult DVDs, plus a free mystery gift. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. So go to adamandeve.com and use the code NERDS at the checkout. That's NERDS. N-E-R-D-S at adamandeve.com. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website rewire.news to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. This is Sanaya Sydney, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. This is Emiyasi Coronaldi, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Simone Missick, and I am Misty Knight, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Cameron Bailey, Artistic Director of the Toronto International Film Festival, and you're now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Balissa Thompson. And I am the creator of the Disability 2Y hashtag and the founder of Rap Your Voice. You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey all, I'm Yutide Badaki. I play Bill Quist on American Gods. And you are all now listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning into episode 117 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Geeking Out with Mark Bernardin and the Wall. Two segments. Our first segment, we invite Mark Bernardin. You probably know him from works such as his podcast Batman on Batman with Kevin Smith. He was also an editor with the LA Times And he's done a lot of comic books. One of my favorites is Genius that he co-created with Adam Freeman. He's our guest in this first segment, and it's hosted by yours truly, Jacqueline and Joelle. In our second segment, Jacqueline has a one-on-one with writer Dwayne Worrell. Dwayne Worrell is the screenwriter for the new American war thriller film, The Wall, starring John Senna and Aaron Taylor Johnson. He also talks about his work on Iron Fist. That's right. He was a staff writer for Iron Fist. So there's some very honest and awkward conversation between him and Jacqueline in that second segment. So that's our show. Two fantastic segments. 
with two amazing guests that have had a profound effect in the entertainment industry. It's BGN 117, Geeking Out with Mark Bernardin and The Wall. Enjoy! Mark Bernardin has written comics for Marvel and DC, has worked as an editor and writer for Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, Playboy.com, and most recently, The Los Angeles Times. He's also been featured as a talking head in pop culture documentaries and moderated panels at San Diego Comic-Con. You can also hear him along with Kevin Smith on the popular podcast, Batman on Batman. And most recently, he teamed up with J.J. Abrams on the new Stephen King crossover series, Castle Rock. Welcome to this fantastic segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Look, I like geeking out all of the time. And at several events that I go to throughout the country, I like to geek out with really great folks. And this particular guest is someone who you know Um, If you are a podcast listener of Fat Man on Batman, uh, if you read the LA Times, he's an editor with the LA Times, and he's also written for Marvel and DC Comics. Very excited to have none other than Mark Bernardin on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you, Mark, so much for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. We are thrilled to have you. So, yeah, I want to talk to you first about your work in the comic book space, because Mm -hmm. I first got hip to your work um, by the work of genius, which is genius, I should say. Um, Thank you. Listen, it's it's the real deal. It's it's such a fabulous book. Um, So thank you for your work on that. And it was one of the first independent comics that I ever read. And in large part because of Afua's work on that cover art, it just, it did it for me. Um, So for our listeners who don't know what Genius is about, what led you to co-create this story? Um, Well, I mean, I've I've always been fascinated by prodigies, um, as was my co-writer, Adam Freeman. Like the, the idea of a child or an adolescent that could compete at an adult level, um, with some natural gift. And it always ended up being like music or math because you don't need any context for notes or numbers. But, you know, chess was also the other thing that you could, as a kid, um, excel at without having to have spent the time learning too much about how to do it. You can come out of the gate and be brilliant at that. Um, so the idea of a, of a prodigy who was amazing at strategy um, was the first sort of prompt that puzzle. And then the other one was um, this documentary I had seen about militias in the middle of America, like in the Appalachians and the, the Rust Belt and that sort of thing. And, you know, so the documentarian had asked one of these guys who was out there in some shooting range in his 100-acre field in the middle of nowhere why he and his friends were training. Like, what, what, are, you, what are you training for? And the guy said, well, you know, when the race war comes, we have to be ready because those black people have already spent time under fire. Like those gangbangers are not afraid of getting shot. They won't flinch if somebody rolls up on them. So we have to be ready. And and that like if a normal person would have heard that and become petrified. But I hear that. I'm like, oh, shit, there's something there Mm. like and then mating those two things, those ideas of, you know, so what if you had a military genius who grew up in the hood, who grew up surrounded by people who were bloodied in combat, who were absolutely willing to throw down if they had to. All they needed was somebody to harness their efforts and coordinate their strength. And how fearsome would that, would that platoon be with the right leader at its head? Mm. That's amazing. You know, teens now have the story of genius to look to. But for us as teens growing up, we had the X-Men. 
And uh, I understand you came to read the X-Men books, like at 13 years old, and you mentioned in an editorial that you wrote that most teens discover X-Men at 13. So what was it about the X-Men that drew you in, and who's your favorite X-Man? I mean, you know, the X-Men is, is this sort of perfect analogy, like mutant powers are the perfect analogy for puberty. Like it's the, you know, my body is changing. I don't understand what's happening to me. I'm sure there's a book somewhere that will tell me why all of these things are going wrong. And oh shit, is that hair? Why is there hair where there's not supposed to be hair? You know, why, why, am I, why am I smelling weird? I don't understand any of these things that are happening to me. And so the X-Men, the, the genius of the X-Men was, what if those same things were happening to you, but instead of, you know, like longer fingernails, you were actually sprouting wings? Or what if instead of, you know, noticing the opposite sex for the first time, you were, holy shit, I can see through schools? How is this possible? You know, the idea that that misfits had a place. And I don't think, I mean, I've, I don't remember being a teenager who fit in anywhere, and I don't know if most teenagers do, or if they do, they're faking, or if they're fitting in with a bunch of other people who also don't fit in, ultimately. But the there is a place for me while I don't feel right in the world, while I don't feel comfortable in my body, and that I'm not being judged because I'm different. You know, like I think universally as an adolescent, it speaks to you. I think specifically as a black kid growing up in the suburbs, it speaks to you as a, I don't feel like I fit in quite right. Like there's, there's my clique and that's totally cool, but I'm a minority in where I am and most of the people don't quite look like me and do I have a place where I belong? And that, that really spoke to me as a kid. That spoke to me as a kid who was reading comic books when nobody was reading comic books, who was playing video games and D&D when nobody was doing those things. Um, and so to find that kind of harmony in the very medium that helped make me an outsider was kind of wonderful. Um, and my favorite X-Man was, was Wolverine, First, because I was also short and squat, um, <laughs> so that that spoke to me quite a bit. But I think my favorite, one of my favorite runs on on the X Men, was when Storm loses her powers. Oh yeah. When oh. it's you know the early two hundreds maybe, and mm -hmm. she has got to discover what she's worth. She has to she has to own herself as a leader, as a as a warrior before she gets her powers back and. When she goes through that gauntlet, she realizes exactly how powerful she is just because of who she is, not because of what she can do. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like any superhero losing their powers are always really fun. But yeah, Storms was definitely my favorite. So, and yeah, but there's so much resonance there. Yeah. And then X-Men for us, and I know Jamie's the same way, that television show kind of birthed us into comics. So let's be honest, it's the greatest. But um, so this is Jacqueline here. <laughs> um, I was also a Spider-Man kid, you know, like I grew up in, uh, in the Bronx and on the south shore of Long Island. And so while I'm like Superman is awesome and yes, Wonder Woman is great and all that stuff, but it was never in my world. Whereas, like, Spider-Man went to high school in Queens, and that high school did not look markedly different from my high school. Like, he worked at the Daily Bugle, which was really the Flatiron building, which oh, I would pass by on my way to go, like, shopping for sneakers and stuff. You know, like, it was my world in a way that, that no other comic universe actually was. And I, I totally responded to it for that. That's so dope. Um, yeah, we're in a great time right now. Um, I was just about to say, too, I was going to say, as a writer, I feel like we're lucky that we get to have these conversations and, like, critique. And then also, if you want to, like, you did create these things, like anything you choose, film, comics, television shows. Um, but it also puts you in kind of this precarious situation where you kind of have to go backwards and forwards. Like, how do you navigate that? Um, is there a different process for you when you're like critiquing something like Coach Fist? Because I also was not a big fan of the Iron Fist series um, <laughs> versus creating something. Let's talk about it. Like, mm, like we're about to put up a, a, a podcast where I interviewed one of the writers and I didn't mean to drag him, but I kind of did. <laughs> I mean, there's something you can't resist doing if you if you get the opportunity, and it's like, come on, guys, really? Did you did you think that was going to work? <laughs> yeah, I tried. Yeah, okay. Anyway, but how do you navigate the two? 
it's it is it is a line that you have to walk and it it gets increasingly precarious the deeper you get into a career on either side you know like it's 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 one thing to be you know some 22 year old punk out of college who gets his first job writing for some crappy newspaper or website or outlet or whatever and nobody's paying very much attention to you and that's okay like everybody needs to have nobody pay attention to them for a while so they can get good so by the time they're paying attention to they can put that time in mm-hmm. but when I, I i'm also very purposefully not a critic i was never a critic at entertainment weekly i was never a critic at the hollywood reporter i was never a critic at the la times um so so my job was never necessarily to render opinion um, it was always to help sort of shape and guide and assign and develop ideas and help contribute to a larger cultural conversation. Um, but even when I do criticize stuff and I do it more on Fat Man on Batman than I do anywhere else, um, save Twitter, where I can. I can <laughs> it's the perfect place for it, isn't it? <laughs> perfect place for it. Um, yeah. But the, the criticism always comes from from a place of. Um, loving the craft of making stuff, you know, like I love writing stories. I love creating narratives and drama and characters and that sort of thing. And, and I always have. So it's when I look at something like Iron Fist or something like Wonder Woman or something like Batman versus Superman or something like Gardens of the Galaxy, it's why does this work and what can I learn from why it works? And often, more importantly, why doesn't this work and what can we take away from that? And I feel like as long as you're being constructive, as long as it's the, the, the effort is to understand less than to criticize, then I think that puts me in a somewhat safer space. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to crap all over anybody's everything because I understand how much work it goes into making anything. The fact that anything mm-hmm. exists is always a miracle because it's so easy for it not to exist. <laughs> like, entropy is the easiest thing in the world because inertia is mm-hmm. overcome. So it's, all right, you guys spent $30 million making this TV show about X. So why does it work or doesn't it work? Why, what are the best stories you could have told about Iron Fist? And what stories do you not get to tell about the American immigrant experience, about the Asian American diaspora, about what it means to be of a culture and not feel that culture around you, you know, to be disconnected from the place of your, of your ancestors. All of that stuff was on the table if you decide to make an Asian Iron Fist. I understand their decision not to. Except I don't. I understand. I don't. <laughs> I think they were fearful, which Hollywood oh, tends mm-hmm. to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand that fear. Bad. I understand the like, all right, it's this way in the comics, and that's fine. But if you're going to do that, it ought to be awesome, right? Like, mm-hmm. make it amazing, justify the fact that you stayed the course. But if you're not going to make it amazing, then it's hard to justify why you didn't try and do something new and just. Mm-hmm. And give your lead actor some training, please. Yeah. It's it's so hard to look at stuff like Into the Badlands and say, they're doing TV and they're doing this 100% better than you do. Yeah. Looking at the same shows, even like Daredevil and. Right. Daredevil. Little kids, they're not asking for finesse. It's like, Mike Coulter just got to walk through a wall and swap fools around. <laughs> you can get that faster than you can get a master of Kung Fu. But even still, it's like, come on, guys. It's, I've seen too much great martial arts on screen for you to think that this would pass. Mm, and that's yeah, why. It's so true. Like, why, why don't. Actually, I was going to say the writer said that. He said that, that was their biggest fault was they didn't. He said, you know what, they would have forgiven us for a lot more if that would have been right. And I'm like, so why didn't you do that exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, it reminded me a bit of the, like in the 70s and 80s, when you would have a hit movie and then you would get a sequel and they would cut the budget on the sequel because they realized that diminishing returns, like no sequel will ever make more than the original movie. So let's not spend as much money and, and resources on the sequel. That's why you get crappy Jaws 2, like, <laughs> and the worst rubber masks in a, in a Planet of the Eight film. Like, I think Star Wars was the first one. It was like, we spend more, then it'll be mm. back, and people will come back. And this was the first time I've seen Marvel spend less on the sequel. It's like, yeah, they're, they're here. They'll be fine. They're coming. They're, we're building towards the Defenders, and they want this, and this is the last, like, chink in the chain, so let's go. 
and they kind of didn't give it the the time and attention and resources it needed, and they cut its legs out from under it. Yeah. Well, you're nicer than me. We our our, our opinions are are very well documented, but I do agree. I think they uh, they chickened out. But you know, I, either way though, it's like you said. It takes a lot of work to make a bad anything, let alone something great. And that's, like you said, a miracle. But, you know, as a writer, I can't really fault anyone because that dude's getting a paying gig. And I feel like we have such an unpredictable world if you're trying to be a writer. And you, on the other hand, had one of probably the best gigs out there. And you were like, I'm good. I'm going to go to the unpredictable world of screenwriting. Like, whatever, kids. Like, how did you make that decision? Because I don't know if I would have had the... Um, intestinal fortitude as uh my mom used to say to do that one <laughs> yeah. no that was that was a that was one of those like hard staring mirror moments of okay you know you've wanted this dream since you were a kid and it's presenting itself to you at what point do you do you chicken out on the dream at what point do you not reach for the brass ring and you know it, and it gets hard like that math gets harder as the older i get when it's okay i've got kids and they're going to be teenagers soon so there's college and there's health insurance and all that stuff and this is a good gig like at film editor for the la times it's nothing to sneeze at but it was just a question for myself of how how would i live with myself if i turned down a chance at the dream and and i ultimately decided okay you know journalism for better or worse will be there if i want it you know, and of course, I say that now, and then I go back to journalism, and there were no jobs and no careers <laughs> to drive the desert. But, but it's like I put 25 years into being a journalist, and I think I'm halfway decent at it. I think I bring some skills to the table, and I'd like to think that if I decide I want to go back to it, I could find a place to do it. But, you know, getting a shot to write on a TV show is like, you know, getting drafted into the NFL. There's one out of hundreds of thousands of people who are qualified to do that job, let alone get a chance to do that job. And if I walked away without giving it my all, I would regret it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Listen to a, you're listening to a lot of Hamilton lyrics, I bet, to get prepped for that one. I know you're a fan of Lynn <laughs> uh, as well. <laughs> no, I went deep into Hamilton. Hamilton was my like coaster from last October through the beginning of this year when I got this gig. And not throwing away my shot was absolutely going through my head at every turn. Mm. We've been talking a lot about um, your work history. We talked about, you know, reviewing and, and critiquing. And we talked about your love of comic books. I want to ask you, I want to take it all the way back, like way, way back. Little Bernardin. When <laughs> do you first know that you're in love with cinema? Um, one of my very, very first memories is being six years old and sitting in a theater and watching a Star Destroyer fly over my head and <laughs> John Williams fanfare kicking off. And I mean, it's, it's cliche to say like, and that's when I was bitten by the movie bug, but it is, it is a foundational part of my life is sitting in a dark room watching magic unspool on a screen in front of me. Um, and it's still, re it remains my happy place. Like, Hey, thing, this is, this has been a notoriously bad week. I want to go to the movies. You know, it's, it's a thing I want to share with people. It's a thing I decided I wanted to make, but it was the first time I think, you know, possibility was, was on screen in front of me. Like the idea that there's another world out there that is maybe only fantasy and maybe only fiction, but it doesn't matter. Um, that you can lose yourself in something else. And from there I turned into a science fiction nut and my dad took me to every science fiction movie that came out, including ones he probably shouldn't have. He then sort of bought <laughs> me comic books that he totally should not have bought me. Like Savage sort of Conan, I think was the first one. <laughs> With like headings and nudity and thievery and viscera and guts and gore. And he hands it to an 11 year old kid and says, all right, go have fun. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I feel like that adult uh, acceptance is one of the things that brings us in. Because I remember, like, when I was a kid, Power Rangers was just first coming on. And I was like, I enjoyed it, but I could tell that it wasn't, like, quality, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like, I could tell my parents like, weren't interested. And when I saw Batman the Animated Series, I was like, oh, like, this is good art. This is 
everything. And from that point on, I was Batman obsessed. And that's what I love watching like Batman on Batman is seeing you know, Kevin Smith is great and, and his comic love is super well documented. What really roped me into the show was watching you like we don't get to see many black nerds. Um, but to see one who is so uh, well versed in the nerd knowledge and someone who was just as excited as I was. Like I can picture you watching uh, Batman the Animated Series and just being elated. I wanted to ask you, um, what is it that you still like still brings you back to Batman that even now after like reading so many comics and writing your own, why is Batman still it? I mean, I think that the thing about Batman that that makes him endure is that Batman is fundamentally a broken character. Like he's been shattered by life. Like it's it's the it's not it's not that you fall down, it's that you get back up after. It's the sometimes the only way out is through. It's by will and will alone do I set my mind in motion. It's all of that stuff. It's the it's the idea that there are no circumstances so bad that you can't climb your way out of it. And and the idea that fear is not necessarily the thing that stands between you and success. Like fear is not a thing to be avoided. Fear is not a thing to be, to, to cower from. It's a thing to embrace and make a part of you so that the next time you encounter that thing, the fear is familiar. It's not debilitating. It's that you can take a punch and keep on moving forward. And I think that that's, that at its core is what makes Batman awesome is that he's one of us. He's one of us who's been brutalized by life, but hasn't let life brutalize him back, you know? And so I can't say that I am like super up to date on Batman books. Like I dip in and I dip out. So because both time and expense is a, <laughs> is a barrier for me, but I sort of always return to that. And when, when I see Batman done right, that's the part of it that I always respond to. It's the, here's a man who by sheer force of will transformed himself into this thing. And this thing is an amazing thing to see. Um, and so, like, I, the one thing that I liked about Batman v Superman, okay, one of the two things I liked about Batman v Superman, <laughs> Wonder Woman, was that, mm. like, you know, Ben Affleck is actually not a bad Batman. Yep, Like, true. even though he's got some salt and pepper, like, he's absolutely, like, I buy him as a oh, sort yeah. of dervish of carnage. Like, I buy that. A lot of that is CP, and I get it, but... Batman ought to be a freaking ninja, like a ninja bulldozer. And that, that movie sold me on that in a way that I hadn't been sold in a while. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you're right, Wonder Woman. I'm curious, what was the other thing? It's so a Wonder Woman and Ben Affleck are your two things for Batman v Superman. Yeah, I could. That you I said could, were good. I could leave the rest of it. Uh, on the yeah, side yeah. of the- and then that like <laughs> two second scene of Aquaman did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've seen our thirst tweets for Jason Momoa's Aquaman, but it is thirsty. <laughs> that is legit. Empirically understand exactly what you're talking about. And I, I am here for Surfer Bro Aquaman all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it will take all the water in Atlantis to quench the thirst of black girl nerds for that man. <laughs> but <laughs> um, moving like on to that's my problem with him. He's not fair. He's not fair. <laughs> to the way he's okay. Like, come on, you should not look like that and also be charming. You should do yeah. that or be charming. But both, nah, that ain't cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. with with it though <laughs> <laughs> we all are <laughs> um so what i was going to ask you is um in this world of secrecy and spoilers and i know it's actually really early on in the process but what if anything can you tell us about castle rock because i mean y'all are bringing in some really heavy hitters this, i mean i don't we don't know what it is yet but there's not a lot of information out so yeah, no, that is, that is the JJ way where there, there's a dozen non-disclosure agreements that I'm bound to, and I'm sure they have a couple just waiting in case I say something stupid. <laughs> I, I will say I will say that I'm I'm actually really excited at the prospect of getting to write and build a show around Andre Holland, um, mm-hmm. who's cast as the lead. You know, and, yeah, and there are. There are lots of tropes within the Stephen King pantheon and, and K 
canon. One of them is not um, sensitive handling and care when dealing with race. So, you know, the fact that we're getting to kind of just lean into and take head on the idea of how Stephen King's worlds deal with characters of color by building a Stephen King show around the character of color. Um, I guess it's challenging but rewarding all at the same time. And I am such an Andre Holland fan that I, I mean, you just don't know. You don't know. <laughs> oh, well, I do actually, because I'm right there with you. I saw him on The Nick, and this is before. Mm. And as soon as I saw him on that, I was like, wherever this brother goes, I will follow. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, wait, what are you doing next? Moonlight? I'm a <laughs> Yeah. Girl, let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, Jamie knows. I got back from TIFF and I was just like hitting her up. I was like, there's this movie and it's about little black boy gay joy and you don't even know. <laughs> and I was on the like, and I was on the like, forget this. I want this movie to win all the awards. but And it did, kind of. <laughs> so we're not going to go reopen Moonlight because we'll be here all day. But since you can't talk a lot about Castle Rock, um, going back to comics, right now I feel like everything is being made. Um, and I feel like my answer is just got announced, but what what non like major DC Marvel character would you like to see brought next either to television or film? What non Marvel or DC character do I want to see on TV or film? Um, yeah, I feel they're going to get to the other ones eventually. <laughs> like we're going to get everyone. Um, I think, I honestly think that there is... There is room in the world for a good Tank Girl show. Yes. 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 Oh, sorry. <laughs> and and Lori's got to make it. a cameo. Lori Petty, who I love, oh, who follows yeah. us on Twitter, like she's yeah. got to make a cameo in this movie. <laughs> I mean, world yeah. is so rich, and it has such a sense of humor. And I mean, it's been a while since I, uh, I revisited the movie. I remember not liking the movie when it first came out, just because I love the comic so much. Mm. And it was one of those, like, the gulf between what they could do and what they wanted to do was so vast that it, I just couldn't mm-hmm. overcome it. But I love those comments. I love that spirit. And I think in, in a post-Furiosa world, we can absolutely live in, in a Tangro universe. Yeah. I think that was a victim of, like you said, like, I just think they edited that trying to make, like, a cartoon movie instead of what it was. So, yeah, yeah I'm down for that. Tank girl! <laughs> Well, speaking of movies, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that on Twitter, you're very much a film critic in the social media space. And I wanted to get your perspective about the film critic circles. Um, Recently, there was actually an article printed on Mashable about the Wonder Woman film that is coming out this weekend. And a lot of the takeaways that they elected to print was from they were all women. They were all women critics. Um, but only one woman of color critic, uh, which was, you know, not not something that um, I, I want to see. So, you know, I wanted to know what your thoughts were about um, women of color and people of color within the film critic space, because it is very sparse. And as someone that's inside of the industry, are you starting to see like a shift in the business to where there's more opportunity happening um, and that we're just not quite seeing it on social media, or is that gatekeeping still very pervasive? And and what suggestions do you have to kind of get past that gate? I mean, it's it is always going to be hard. It's always going to be hard, primarily because the gatekeepers who are controlling who gets hired and who gets fired are old white guys, nine times out of ten. And so the people that old white guys will hire, nine times out of ten, are old white guys or young white guys. Young white guys with baseball hats because it reminds them of them when they were young. Mm. Um, and, you know, like some of it is, is just non-conscious bias. Some of it is laziness. Some of it is um, they don't have the social connections to bring them into spheres of other people. Um, and so the work can suffer. And I know some great old white guy critics. I mean, I, I worked with Kenny Tarrant at the LA Times, and he is super smart and as old as you can imagine, but <laughs> you know, still engages in a real way with movies, and that's awesome. But, you know, I was also able to hire in the 11 months that I was at the LA Times, I was able to hire Justin Chang, 
from Variety to come over and be the new number two critic over there. And it was important to me that if we're going to if we're going to augment Kenny Turan, who at some point will retire, and Justin Chang would be the main film critic for the Los Angeles Times, like that's a huge friggin' thing. Mm. You know, when I when I had a, a, a slot to to fill in my writers' ranks for the movie department of the LA Times, after Rebecca Keegan left to go to Vanity Fair, I was adamant that we hire a woman. Um, and we ended up hiring Jen Yamato because Jen Yamato is amazing. We and love anybody, her. Mm-hmm. Anybody who can hire Jen Yamato should hire Jen Yamato. But the idea that, you know, you have to have going into an intent. And the intent was to make sure that we were, we were reflecting the world at large with the way we were writing about film, the way we were critiquing film, the way we were presenting film to the world. And you can't, you can't, pretend to be an advocate for the world at large if you're not reflecting the world at large. Um, and I think that that ends up being the stumbling block is simply a matter of intent. Like, they, if you're hiring somebody and you're not adamantly saying, I've got 18 white guys on staff, we need some color in here, we need some women in here, we need some women of color in here, then you're, you're not doing your job as well as you can be doing. Granted, it is incredibly easy for me to say not being a journalist anymore, as I as I just post fire all over everybody in every editorial newsroom. But I think that more often than not, they know the reality of the situation, which is business as usual can no longer be business as usual, and the people you used to hire cannot be the only people you hire. Comics um, is feeling that you know the the growing pains of diversifying their writer core and more importantly their editorial core. Because, you know, you can bring on as many writers as you want of color, but if there's still somebody at the top who doesn't understand that experience, then it's never going to, it's never going to penetrate the way you need it to. You know, That's you're so never, true. You're never going to be able to champion stories outside of, your, uh, outside of your experience if you don't have any stories outside of your experience. You know, like, you did some really great work at the LA Times in the year that I was there. Simply because, you know, writers were able to pitch me ideas and I was able to pitch them back ideas that were a little bit on the edges of what they had done before. So it was like, if we're going to do a story about sort of Asian stereotyping and Asian erasure, go for it. If we're going to do a story about, you know, LGBT film festivals. If we're going to do a story about, you know, what it's like to have to change the dialogue and introduce words like queer in a... 200 year old newspaper that never wanted to have that word in print hmm. like those are important stories to do but you have to have somebody who's willing to champion those stories to begin with i think it's really interesting as we talk about creators of color and editors of color and their roles in creating new stories and uh maybe not even new stories but just getting their stories out and i'm curious it would be challenging to find someone who's more well read or has seen more movies and i'm wondering what stories do you think are kind of missing from the american diaspora what do we need to be seeing more of what would you like to see more of on the shelves i mean i i just want to see more it's funny i remember pitching a book a while back and uh and i wanted to make the villain a black guy and i got some resistance from the publisher who, who was being overly about it, overly sensitive about it. And, and my logic was, you know, you haven't actually made any progress until you can have a character of color be anything. Like, why can't my big bad be a black guy? Why couldn't it be Will Smith? Like, why, like, paint yeah. me a Will Smith villain. Like, the, the idea that every story does not have to be, you know, here's a hero who's cleaning up the street. Or here's yeah. a hero who used to be a jock who's making good. Or, you know, and, you know, for what it's worth, like, genius plays into some of those stereotypes, which is we're playing in, you know, gangbanger zone, and this is what it is, and we're telling a different story than you've heard in that arena. But that arena at least made it something that somebody could gravitate towards. And had a of familiarity to it, even if the story did you know, and we we're just putting the finishing touches on the sequel to Genius, Genius Cartel. Wait, yeah. Go back and repeat that because there was some movement and I couldn't hear it. <laughs> yeah, Genius, genius Cartel. Uh, the continuing story of Destiny Ajaya. Um, 
picks up in August, and we revisit the next chapter of her of her military career, where she's no longer in South Central. Like she's in a completely alien environment, having to deal with with hostilities in ways she's never dealt with before, dealing with characters in a world she's never dealt with before. And like, if you take a girl out of the hood, but you don't take the brilliance out of the girl, what happens next? Um, and so it was important to us to to change where that story was, even though we still love the character, but change the dynamics and the feel of what that story was. Like, I want I want stories about people of color that have them doing everything, like from nothing at all. Like, where's my Woody Allen comic book? Where's my Slice of Life comic book about black people? Just friggin' hanging out. Where's my Scott Pilgrim about black people? Where's, you know, where's half of a vertigo line of just like people moping and listening to punk about black people? <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, like that, that for me is what it looks like when there's success, you know, and is, as excited as I am at the prospect of this Black Lightning show, I was a little crestfallen because it was just Black Lightning is patrolling the hood because there's a gang that's infiltrating the school and his kids are in danger or whatever. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it, but this is Boys in the Hood with Lightning, so could we not do anything different yeah. with that mm-hmm. 20 years later? Like, is there is there not a bigger story to be told about what it is to have powers and to have responsibility? doesn't also require people to be holding their pistols sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, four minutes of Black Lightning and they might very well be expecting what they're pitching in that little reel. I don't know what the show is, so I can't really speak for certainty. But on the show, yeah, I want to see more. Show me, show me the diaspora of stories along with a diaspora of people, and then I'm a happy guy. You just said a word right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, um, Mark, first and foremost, thank you for really just giving us a lot of insight about the industry, telling us a little bit about your background, your comic book work, your work with the LA Times, your work with Castle Rock. Um, for our listeners, can you let them know where they can find you on social media? And if there's any projects that you're working on, um, please shout them out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively easy to find. Um, at Mark Bernardin, M-A-R-C-E-R-N-A-R-D-I-N on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and what's coming out? I mean, Genius Volume 2 is starting in August. We're really excited about. Um, I'm working on a as-yet-unannounced graphic novel about the most famous athlete to ever walk the earth that I'm almost done writing. Um, that because it's unannounced, I can't say very much more beyond that. I probably shouldn't have even said that, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> we got the exclusive. Yes, girl. <laughs> um, and yeah, just castle rocking until castle rock runs its course and then we'll see what's next. But, you know, like I'm, I am in almost every way possible living the dream and very it never, cool. it never, I'm never not grateful for it. Hmm. Not a lot of people can say that. So that's, that's inspiring words to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I, it's funny. Every a year, every year goes by and it's, I realize that the older I get, the more statistically anomalous I am. <laughs> like when you get actuarial tables for African-American men born in urban environments, um, it often does not get quite as high as I've already gotten. And so it's abundantly clear to me that everything is a gift. One of that gift a disservice to you and your family and everybody around you. So I, uh, I love every minute of it, even the parts I don't. Thank you for your wisdom, Mark. No, my yeah. pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for finally making this happen. It's uh, I've been a fan from afar, so to get to play with you guys is awesome. Yes. And I can't wait for Genius. I'm so excited about that. (laughs) Dwayne Worrell was born in St. Michael, Barbados, bred in Boston, Mass., and graduated with a degree in theater from Georgia State University. Spending over a decade in China, Dwayne worked as a translator and English teacher before writing his first feature screenplay, The Wall which would climb up to the top of the 2014 blacklist and become one of the first spec scripts purchased by Amazon Studios. 
The film is now in theaters, directed by Doug Lyman, and starring Aaron Taylor-Johnson and John Senna. Dwayne's other writing credits include the horror film Walking the Dead and the action thriller Operator. He was also a staff writer on Marvel's Netflix series Iron Fist. All right, Dwayne. Well, um, folks, it's Jacqueline, and we're sitting down with Dwayne Worrell. He's the writer of the new film The Wall with John Cena and Aaron Taylor Johnson. It's directed by Doug Lyman, and I just watched it. It's absolutely amazing. So, first of all, Dwayne, thank you for chatting with us. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I don't know if you can hear the dogs outside. <laughs> A little. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's um, I'm I'm here in LA. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm glad for you have to ha- for having me. And um, yeah, it's always good to uh, get a little bit of the word out with uh, your 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 new films. Yeah, no, I saw it, and I actually saw a clip of it at CinemaCon, and so I kind of kept it on my radar. And um, so for folks that don't know your background, so you have a theater background, and that's where you kind of went, and then you started writing films, but. If you haven't seen the movie, it it's like a play when you watch it. Like, um, was that your intention, or did you just happen to write a play movie because that's what happens? Well, I I definitely didn't intend for it to be like a play. Um, I think maybe intuitively my theater background sort of influenced uh, the way I, I I wrote that script and I write other scripts. Um, but I definitely. Um, took a detour from theater after realizing that film is sort of a uh, is sort of the modern writer's job there's so little work that can be got in the theater space right now in compared to the amount of tv shows and films that are being made um not intentionally like a play but um i'm i'm sort of glad that 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 it went there I mean, I'm not the first person to say that to you either, I imagine. Um, people have been commenting that it's kind of like a play a little bit. Right. Many people have said, yes. <laughs> would you want to see it ever adapted as a play? Like, kind of like three-act thing? Or would you just like it the way that it is? <laughs> it would be interesting. I Look, I you know, if, if someone wants to pay, to, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue with them. But um, I've, I, I've, I've never thought of thought 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 of that but um it could be cool i think it would have to change and i think it would have to be slightly more similar to the script because there are there are there were some things that changed in its transition to uh from script to film yeah but, uh, i mean this wasn't what i was asked but i heard the ending was a little bit different as well right Yes, the ending was originally a little bit different, yes. Yeah, um i'm not going to give that away but when i read that i was like well i kind of want to see that now like can I see that? Um, I know as a writer, like, you don't, you know, you write it on the page and then what happens to it is what happens to it. But when you right. were writing it, um, you were in China as an English as a second language teacher, correct? Right. I was working abroad um, teaching English um, in Beijing. Yeah. Uh, um, that, I mean, I think like every time you write, or at least when I write, what I have going on around me, like definitely influences what I'm writing. Do you feel that's maybe, you know, being a black man in China is how you decided to make this, like, very isolated movie? That's interesting. Um, <laughs> no, I, well, I, I, I don't, maybe, I mean, it's possible. I don't, you know, you <laughs> never really know where, where the germ of the idea comes from. But um, I do think um, language influences the, uh, the, the screen, the movie, uh, very much. They, they talk a lot about language, and it's not Chinese and uh, Mandarin and English, but it's, it's Arabic and English, and he talks about the, uh, how language can be camouflaged, and you can camouflage yourself in words. And I think a lot of this came from my language learning background um, in studying Mandarin. So I feel that perhaps there, is, there are some influences indirectly from my being in China. You know, that's one I would have never guessed it, but yeah, God, that does dictate so much. And again, I don't want to give it away because it is one of these great films that has like a build to it and, and a very cool, like, I guess you would say progression of events. I'm not going to say anything else because I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but mm. yeah, the language aspect is big. Cause I mean, it's a lot of talking because the film, um, to co- sort of paint it for the audience, if you haven't seen the trailer for it, it's, um, John Cena's character who plays Matthews and Aaron Taylor Johnson's character, um, plays Isaac, right? I got those right. I don't want to mess that up. Um, those two are pinned down by an, a sniper 
and they're basically able to radio contact with him and the conversations between the two of them is kind of it's very like it's chess i think is the best way to put yeah. it it's like putting one side against the other to make a move because one of them is pinned down and and they're all both behind this flimsy wall but neither one of them can kind of get away um and it's just sort of like who can capture the king which would be you know to shoot the other one um the film was it's, it's how do i put this it's really claustrophobic like i felt very like pinned in with the action of the movie but it's out in the middle of this like expansive like open desert like was that on the page initially to make it feel pinned in but completely 100%. open it was then um it was even more so i feel the um the wall got and it did happen a little bit in the film but in the script it happened twice so if you if we just need a number the the wall is you know 15 feet long mm-hmm. um which it isn't it isn't but and then you know for the sake of easy math and then when it gets hit at one point it drops to 10 mm-hmm. and then it gets hit again and it's now only five feet oh, um, wow. so in the script it was supposed to become progressively progressively smaller until it's just a slither of the wall and um it's sort of like that in the film but they don't hit they don't do it twice they they do it at one point they do do it at one point but i still feel like maybe they didn't do it as many times but it still felt that way like i very much felt pinned down but then they would go to these big wide shots of like the yeah. whole area and then you're just like but it's not and i just i loved that juxtaposition i thought it was so so amazing um and i love that it was written in the script even more uh, i'm pretty sure that's how like you have like you kind of shot the moon, if you will, on your first attempt, or and maybe not your first attempt, but on this attempt because no, like it's really rare that an unlike commissioned script then gets like produced into a film. And yours was on the blacklist, which if folks don't know, that's like the list of the best um, uncommissioned scripts that are out there that they're trying to get made into movies. What was that process be, um, from you writing the script and then getting it optioned by Amazon just on spec, which is insane <laughs> <laughs> well um so you said the the process from from when i after i finished writing it until it gets or, produced or like from the spec like how did you get in touch with amazon like how did that whole process start like how did you get on the blacklist i guess okay well amazon has an open submission um for screenplays yeah and many people have won money on um this and i i actually not mad, but the 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 prize, the grand prize, used to be one million dollars. What? And they they, <laughs> they, uh, they cut it by ten percent. So there are a couple people who've won a million dollars through Amazon, but the film the films were never made. Um, and I you know I wrote my screenplay, and I I didn't know anyone. I had I knew no one in the industry. I knew no one who knew an agent. I knew nobody who knew nobody. So I sent it to Amazon, and. Um, Two weeks later, Amazon said, hey, we want to option your script. And they optioned it. And it wasn't until Doug came on that Amazon just, their eyes lit up and they were like, yes, let's do it. Yeah, because Doug Lyman, the director who, you know, uh, born movies and then also he did um, Edge of Tomorrow, correct? If I'm, I, right. I didn't look him up. Tomorrow. and like, Yeah, basically, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, his career is just great action films that have something else to them, whether it be that they're funny or that they're dramatic or that they're more emotional. But yeah, he, he finds a way to direct, I feel, action in a way that's very new and different. So I think he's kind of the perfect one to this because this is an action thriller without question, even though <laughs> there's not a lot of movement in so many ways. It's so, it's like, there's so many contradictions to it, but I love it. I, I really, um, as an indie film junkie, I, I, I really love films like this that are so different because you can't put it in one box, right? That's cool. And I, you know, and I, you know, and I, I said I appreciate you having me on before. And you said you being an indie film junkie, I really feel it's very important that even though you know, I, I, I love um, the Avengers, 
and some of those superhero movies. <laughs> I, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of an overload, and we, we should sort of tip our hats to, to some of the smaller films that are, are out there. Oh, you preach to the choir on that one. I mean, like, let's be honest. I grew up as like a, a, a musical theater nerd. Like the first thing I, the first CD I had my mom buy me was a cast album. Like I was that kid. So um, <laughs> I'm very used to um, like, I first got into classic film because of classic musicals. And then that just sort of like, then pushed me to watching more of TMC. So I really do appreciate that. But I'm with you. Like I, I feel the superhero fatigue, but then I see a film like Logan, where they yeah. just take the narrative and turn it on its head, and they make a western. Um, like it felt so much like Shane a little bit. Like remember Shane, where it's like the old guy going out for or Unforgiven, like going out for one last job. Like yeah. they made that into a superhero movie, and then I just geek out a little. But you're they're not all like that, you know. It's like a one for ten, unfortunately, and. Uh, but I, agree. but I, agree. I will say um, Amazon and streaming services. It's so funny right now in the news, uh, can is going on and there's the big kerfuffle about films being released th theatrically for right. these streaming okay. services. But in a way, I do feel like these streaming services are also kind of saving independent film because films like your, yeah, films like yours and films like Dear White People find an audience and now it gets made into a show and films like The Big Sick. There's no way that those films are going to make or going to be released the way that they're going to be released or going to be as successful as they can be successful without these streaming services because they their mark of, of success is different, right? Um, right? A film like yours, it has its theatrical run in it and we definitely want that to be successful, but then it has a whole nother life online with them streaming after it it goes out, you know, and, and that's part of it. And that marks the success because then it keeps people on their platform. So what's it like? Cause you've worked now with two streaming services. What's it like? What would you say is different? I've never actually thought about it like that, but yeah, that's true. I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, they, they were writing checks. So <laughs> what's it like between the two? I mean, I know they're totally, totally different mediums, but what, well, just maybe tell me what was your, um, process working uh, as a staff writer on Iron Fist and how is that completely right. different? And right. And the reason why I, I, I feel it's different and I, 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 I don't feel like I've worked with Netflix is because it was all through Disney uh, and oh, okay. Marvelous, Marvel and Disney. So we, we worked 99% with Marvel and Disney and then just occasionally we'd hear net, see, see people from Netflix come by. But when we gave, when we wrote our scripts and we sent them to the, uh, the execs and the producers, they were all from Disney and Marvel. Wow. So, um, I didn't really work with Netflix so much. While on the Amazon side, it was directly with Amazon. I worked with Amazon on that um, project. Wow. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's sort of how it worked. And um, I don't know. I, I, I liked working with both of them. I, I really like Amazon. I think they are very much artist-centric. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I am not speaking ill of netflix i love netflix but again i didn't work with them directly mm -hmm. and, um the type of show we were doing is a, a lot more commercial than um sort of the art house style on amazon side yeah and i would say this too i mean wait, let's see let me try to be as diplomatic as possible <laughs> because I'm like, I'm like, you've been on the internet. Um, that was one where maybe what, how do I put this? What happened with the film wasn't, what happened with the series maybe wasn't what folks anticipated to begin with. And I'm sure that's a, a very difficult process as a writer on a television show. Um, uh -huh. Which... No, no. Can I can I can I jump back a second? It wasn't what people anticipated. Uh, can, can you elaborate? Just a <laughs> um, well, it didn't have the best reception. I mean, that, let's be honest. All okay, the okay. other all the other shows had a very like I okay. would say pretty well, quick thought... reception, and uh, I think Iron Fist got where it needed to be eventually. But the initial the initial reception both from like, honestly, like for a while was not great. And it must suck being but involved. It, it's, it's, it's still not great. Um, what I'm <laughs> talking about is the Asian lead. Oh, you know, no, I wasn't going to throw you on the bus under that one. I mean, I know you don't have any choice. Like that. 
But let's talk about that. We, I mean, you could go to our website if you want to learn all about how our feelings are about that. I just meant more like, look, you're in there in the writer's room and they give you characters that you have to write for. You don't right. cast them and then you're writing for these characters. And yeah, you may have a picture in your mind of who you think should play them, but that doesn't always happen. How do you deal with that? You're like, look, when I wrote this character, this is what I envisioned. And wait a second, wait a second. Let, 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 let me slow this down real quick. So, um, on, <laughs> so I, I haven't, I haven't checked out your web, website too. But, um, so on your website, um, <laughs> <laughs> get this, Lord. You, 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 you reviewed Iron Fist. I did not personally review it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> my editor did it's been reviewed huh? all right now, now i gotta now i gotta go check <laughs> oh lord i can't believe you didn't check before <laughs> well I, you know what i never i didn't think about iron fist but well th because this interview was all about the wall so i i never it, it didn't it didn't occur to me yeah and uh, i didn't want but... to take it there but you took it there so yeah i'm gonna tell it like, like, we were not fans of <laughs> okay okay but... and look you know <laughs> It's all, all good, you know. I I'm very open. You know, I've done a, a few interviews, and people have been like you. They've, they've been really nice in avoiding um in avoiding these things. I'm not saying you're not nice, but I'm, <laughs> it's all for me. It's all good. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not sad or angry or hurt. People will have their opinions. Yeah. We we set out to do a job. We did the best we could, and um, it is what it is. So I will put it to you this way to put a nice little bow on it. Um, okay. I'll put it to you this way. Regardless of that, you're the writer. So what's it like? You have two separate issues where I feel like the wall is getting great praise for your writing and what you wrote on the page. And then to be involved in the other half, like how do you how do you deal with the kind of the two? Or do you say, hey, this was part of a team. This is a bigger thing. Like which how do you deal with that as a writer? Because I know you take it personal. We all take it personal. It's why we're <laughs> writers and we're not like actors. Like we want to brood at our keyboards. <laughs> Like I said, I um I put it off on everybody else. I say, oh, it's, oh, it's their fault. It's, it's the other writer's fault. No, no. Um, I um, I I I I just you know you you deal with it. Um, you don't because I you know I'm on Twitter and someone had pulled and I this was the first time I'd ever experienced this. I don't even have a lot of followers. You know, I have like followers. Um, so I never expected it, but someone a few people have like hit me directly at Dwayne Morrell and they were like, Hey, I did not like Iron Fist. Like, what were you guys thinking? Da, 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 da. I was like, wow. Okay. So this is what it's like. And I was actually sort of happy. I was like, wow, this is, this is what the celebrities talk about all the time. I'm, I'm starting to get that. So, um, it means that I'm making it somewhere in the world. It means that I'm on my way up. Yeah, um, yeah. If you if you have some haters, it's pretty and much a, right. a line of success. Like it really I is. Be talking to one of them right now. But, <laughs> no, you're not talking okay. to the one. Look, I'll be I'll be Don't the first joke. one to Don't tell joke. you. I'll be first one to tell you. It was not my favorite show. Okay. It, it was not my favorite show. Problem for me is it's like I like most people. Um, I felt the show, the second half of the show versus the first half. We're going to be completely honest. I feel the second half was better, way better. Um, but My episode was in the first half. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're listed on all of them, so you got to take it up with Netflix. Right, 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 right. No, right. I just felt it got better, and I felt the characters got you know, and I, I had some of my favorite moments with that. I really loved um, the drunken master with um, ah. Louis Tan. I loved that. I loved Colleen. So there was things about it I no. liked. Are you are you a fan of martial arts films? Are you a fan of? Oh, the, uh... definitely. Yeah. Like so. Like when I saw okay. Daredevil for the first time, I said I was like, okay, so we're gonna do old boy now. That's cool. Let's do that. You know, uh -huh. like I loved it. Um, there's a, there's a ton of. Um, I would say I was a little bit of a Quentin Tarantino fangirl for a while, and he has this huge um, affection for, you know, Japanese and Chinese cinema and filmmakers, mm -hmm. and yeah, so, no, I was that girl. So, no, I really did like it. Like, I like that style. Like, I love Into the Badlands. 
like that show, well, <laughs> they had a very interesting episode last night, so we're not going to get too deep into it. I don't know if you follow okay. Into the Badlands. Do you follow that show? I, I don't. I don't know. I, okay, I, uh... so that show is dope, and it's really great, and like the it has a great um, stunt choreography, and it's awesome. And I love it when the fight scenes look like dances, because, again, musical theater girl, when they make mm. them look like dancing, I love it. It's so great. So, right. yeah, I do like that. But... No yeah. more. I mean, like, I feel so no, bad no, now. You know, no, you <laughs> about that, that conversation. So you're like, Iron Fist, not my favorite show. Into the Badlands, the choreography, the choreography was amazing. That was like, I, 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 if I were a very emotional person, I would be hurt right now. No, don't but be I, hurt. Don't be hurt. I mean, do you want me no, to lie to you? You brought it up. No. <laughs> maybe, maybe I want you to lie. No, no, no. It's, no. it's good that you're. This is the thing. But I told you I liked which characters I liked, which parts of the writing I liked. But yeah, I gotta, I gotta keep it real. By the way, though. I appreciate that. Your name is the only name on the wall, and I hunted you down on Twitter, so let's not keep it real. <laughs> I really do like your writing. I really do. <laughs> um, anything you want to plug besides the wall? Where can folks find you online? Um, I am at Dwayne War- Dwayne A. Worrell on Twitter. Um, if you want to leave a bad comment, you, you don't have to uh, <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> And um, not just check out the wall. It's it's a it's a great film. It's a smaller film. You won't hear about it much among the King Arthur's and uh, Wonder Woman uh, sized films. Um, but I feel uh, you, sh- you should give it a chance. Um, give indie films a chance. No, I would totally agree. It's it's a very good like. I feel like indie film is one of those things. It's a very good film to see in the theater because there is that cinematic aspect of it because you're in this dark room and you get to feel that claustrophobia. A lot of films tout that, but you really do feel it there. So anyway, well, Dwayne, thank you. Please don't hold a grudge for me because I'm not. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Oh, my gosh. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. I might even cut that out about Iron Fist. The Black Girl Nerds Podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.